Our second reading is from the first letter of John, chapters 1 and 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The word of the Lord. The imagery there is that of hypocrisy and of how we look in mirrors trying to figure out who we are. And it, hypocrisy is an issue not just with Christians, but with all of us as humans. It's a, it's a reality of we're always trying to put on a front, trying to figure out how we fit in and how we should project ourselves. But the reality is also this, that Christians have a particular problem with hypocrisy, especially as it, as it concerns perceptions of those outside of the church. I don't know if any of you have experienced this personally, either from a receiver or a giver. I know that I've been a giver of hypocritical actions and words and thoughts. When I was in England, I became friends with a few guys that uh, were outside of the church. They'd never really grown up in Christianity. And we'd go to the pub every couple of months, usually laughing it up, talking about all sorts of things, and it, sometimes talking about very serious things. One time we were talking about politics, and my statements became overly strong. And one of the guys who was with me, who I'd known for a couple of years by then, said, that's the problem with Christians. You talk about love, but you don't actually love. I remember realizing that what I say and how I say it has an impact I asked some friends this week about how they've experienced hypocrisy or how they see it in the church. One talked about how Christians often have lack of intellectual continuity or integrity. He said, how can you be both pro-life and pro-death penalty? Now, before you give me your quick reaction response, there is often a challenge with theological integrity amongst Christians that what we say in one area does not align with another because we pick and choose what to emphasize. Things going on in our culture, even in this past week, have prompted a lot of online 
projections and claims, things that have gotten people a little bit riled up. One friend who had spent a number of years in the church ended up posting something on her Facebook page related to something going on in the news. She said that almost instantly, very violent words were put out by people in the church that she had been a part of growing up. She texted me. It was at night. I'm in a meeting. She texted me and said, explain this to me. (laughs) She, She wrote, unfortunately, I'm not surprised by the venomous hate spewing about this. But she asked me, how does one reconcile being able to hate so much while claiming to be guided by faith? How do you use texts to respond to that? Christians have a hypocrisy problem. According to UnChristian, the book that many of you have started reading, and some other studies that have followed it up by Barna, Christians have a hypocrisy problem. According to the studies that they've done on Gen X and Gen Y, the younger generations, here's some of the responses about Christians and the church. 85%, 85% say that Christians are hypocritical. 35% have left the church or avoided the church because of the moral failure of leaders. This goes historically from televangelists in the 80s to the church and sexual abuse scandals that have rocked the world and hit thousands upon thousands with broken and destroyed lives to pastors who have personal jets because it's absolutely necessary. 84% of young non-Christians say that they know a Christian personally, yet only 15% say that the lifestyle of their Christian friends is noticeably different in a good way. In other words, they're not talking about stereotypes, they're talking about people they actually know who claim to be Christians. 60% of outsiders say the church does not feel like a safe place to express doubts. And over half of those outside the church view Christians primarily as aggressive or critical. Many outsiders reject Christianity because of the experiences they've had with the church or with Christians. Here's some of the stories in case you didn't get a chance to read the book Unchristian or catch up with us. A couple of actual anecdotal stories of people who responded to the surveys that Barna put out a number of years back about how Christians act hypocritically. And these are the experiences that these people have had. Preston, age 23, is a Mormon. Here was his comment about his Christian friends. The message about talking to Mormons with loves seems hollow to me especially when I've heard them joking about us. It would be like exclaiming, you'll feed the starving in Ethiopia, but then laugh about how scrawny they are. I don't find either very funny. Erin, age 32, said her husband abused her even though he taught Bible studies about how husbands should love their wives. Now she is divorced, and her faith has taken a beating. 
And finally, Victoria, a 24-year-old single mom, described the impact of hypocrisy in the church this way. Everyone in my church gave me advice about how to raise my son, but a lot of the time they seemed to be reminding me that I have no husband. Besides, most of them were not following their own advice. It made it hard to care what they said. They were not practicing what they preached. Victoria is not currently attending a church. Our hypocrisy as Christians and as churches has been deeply wounding to many people. It's driven many people from the church or kept them away altogether. If that's you today, if you've experienced that, I am sorry. I cannot apologize on behalf of all the people who have hurt you, but it's wrong. It's wrong if people's hypocrisy have caused you to feel like you can't hear the gospel message. If their life and their words towards you have gotten in the way of you meeting Jesus, or if you have dealt with deep wounds because of wrongs done to you in the name of Christianity, I really am sorry. The Christian church has a hypocrisy problem. There are perceptions that we are uniquely big hypocrites. So what do we do with these perceptions? Well, let me say this to start off with. Look, some perceptions may not be valid or fair. That, that's true. There are times when we're going to disagree with people, and they're going to then assume that we're being hypocritical. But look, the reality is this. People who are outside the church and claim Jesus was loving and tolerant without recognizing he was holy and truthful don't understand the fullness of Jesus. And there are times when we're simply having integrity to the truth of Christianity, and people are going to view that as hypocritical. But the statistics are too high in number. The anecdotal stories, too many. And the deep feelings of hurt and woundedness are too real to suggest that there's more than our share of culpability in our hypocritical stances and responses that people give us. So how do we change the perception of being hypocrites? Three things we're going to look at today. First, our lives should have integrity and reflect Jesus. Second, we need to admit the depth of our sin. And third, we need to live out the gospel of grace in our lives and into the lives of others. First thing is that our lives don't often match our beliefs. The church is known for that. And honestly, we do need to live with integrity. And what we should be doing is reflecting Jesus. According to one of the more recent studies done by Barna, here's the difference between people inside the church and outside the church, according to their life. People inside the church go to church more and own more Bibles. That's it. There is no statistical difference in lifestyle beyond those two things. That's a problem. Listen to what John says in 1 John as he is critiquing the church and warning them against their hypocrisy. He writes in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6, 8, and 10, If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
He goes on to say, if we say we have no sin or act like we're better or we're not sinners, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make Christ a liar and Christ's word is not in us. He goes on in chapter two to say, whoever says, I know Jesus Christ, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. He's talking about living with integrity, a life that reflects Jesus, that we need to admit our sin, that we need to follow the ways of Jesus. There is a life of integrity that reflects Jesus. And that life of integrity is there in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. There's a sense in which our lives should demonstrate to people who are outside the church what Jesus looks like. They should see us, experience us, and say, oh, now I understand Jesus. There should be something different about us. The aroma of Christ should be on us. In a 2013 survey done by Barna, looking into whether Christians are more like Pharisees or more like Jesus, the numbers are not good for Christians. It was a survey that was done of people who claim to be Christians, self-proclaimed Christians. So this is not outsiders. This is people inside the church answering questions. And the questions had to do with attitudes and actions that reflect Jesus or attitudes and actions that reflect the Pharisees in the gospel accounts. And basically, respondents were asked to rate on a scale of one to four what applied most to them or what didn't apply to them. And these were the sorts of questions that they were asked to respond to. Here were some of the actions and attitudes of Jesus. On a scale of one to four, is this always true about you or not true about you? I regularly choose to have meals with people with very different faith or morals from me. I believe God is for everyone. I feel compassion for people who are not following God and doing immoral things. Those are the reflections of attitudes and actions like Jesus. The self-righteous actions, the pharisaical actions and attitudes had to do with answering positively in this way. I don't talk about my sins or struggles. That's between me and God. I prefer to serve people who attend my church rather than those outside the church. I find it hard to be friends with people who seem to constantly do the wrong things. This 2013 survey shows, as it sees up here, that over 50% of Christians answered in such a way that would identify them more with the actions and attitudes of Pharisees than with Jesus. Only one in seven Christians, in other words, according to the upper right category, only one in seven Christians think and act like Jesus. Do our words and actions align? Do our lives match our beliefs? And do they reflect Jesus at all? First, we need to live with integrity and reflect Jesus. Second, we need to admit the depth of our sin. Look, Christians are known in our culture to be against sin, 
What we should be known for first is to be the sort of people who admit the depth of our own sin. Christianity makes this claim, we are sinners. But Christian volume regarding some sins in the culture and to our neighbors suggests there's a hierarchy. As opposed to we are all sinners, it's we're all sinners, but you're worse. But what does Christianity actually say? Everyone is a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. Regardless of their religion, their morality, their lifestyle, their avoidance of known sins, every one of us is equally a sinner. Psalm 53 puts it pretty blatantly as David writes and says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And what's the answer? No. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul sums this up in Romans 3.23 when he writes, all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let that be really true in your thinking. Think about that for a moment. If that's really true, then what that means is both, both John Paul II, the former Pope, and Osama bin Laden are both sinners. Crazed murderer Charles Manson and Billy Graham are both sinners. and fall short of the glory of God. If we really believe that, the doctrine of original sin, which is very integral to Christianity, it should affect how we approach life and others. For one, it should cause us to be less shocked when we see things in the world around us. We should not be surprised by the effects of the fall in people's lives or in the culture around us. We're all sinners. None of us seeks God. Why are you shocked when you see sin in the world? Because you see it in your own life. Instead, as people who recognize the depth of our sin, we should be moved to more heartbreak at the brokenness and its effects in the world around us. We should be less shocked if we really believe this, and honestly, we should be more humble if we really believe that we are sinners, we should recognize that we are no different than anyone else. And I wonder if that's true. If outsiders, people that you know outside of the church, whether it's family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers, do outsiders really think that you believe that you're just as sinful as they are? Is that the perception that they receive from you? Are you open about your brokenness and sin? Christians are very good at hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a word that, from its derivation, means to put on faces. It's play-acting, appearing good and religious. And here's the reality. Look, appearing good and religious is vital if you think being religious and being good are what save you. 
You're gonna go to great lengths to show yourself to be a good person if you think being good is what gets you in. The opposite of that hypocrisy, I think, is actually transparency. David Kinnaman, in our book, Unchristian, called to, uh, dis, described transparency this way. Transparency simply means admitting what the Bible says about us. We are fallen people who desperately need God in our lives every day. This whole appearances thing is hard because it's very common in the church to enter, for instance, on a Sunday morning and look like you have it all together. Perfect families, everyone nicely dressed, children following their parents. And look, as an aside on clothes, it's not dress horribly in order to prove that you're really authentic. If you're in the younger generation or the more casual generation, recognize that people who are sometimes in an older generation or come from other cultural backgrounds recognize that there's a place for dressing up even in a church, and it may not be hypocrisy. It may be just a choice. So watch your reverse hypocrisy on that one. But do you know how hard it is probably for an outsider to enter a church filled with people who look so good and together? Especially if you're a recovering alcoholic or divorced or are very, very aware of your own brokenness and junk. We may not have it all together, but do they know? And again, the answer is not avoid showering and yell at your kids in church. Don't come in here being a mess just to show that you're not hypocritical. The answer is actually learn to be open. It's to cultivate transparency. How do you cultivate transparency? You've got to actually invite people into your life. We should be the sort of people that commit relationally, hear what I'm saying, commit relationally to friends and people outside of your immediate family so that you can live openly with them. It takes trust, building trust to be truly transparent. But we need to have friendships outside of our immediate family where we can admit our own insecurities, our doubts, even our sins. We need people who see our weaknesses who know our family dysfunction. And quite frankly, if we don't practice transparency through circles of friends, then we'll never live honestly before outsiders. Consider how admitting the depth of your sin, living humbly and transparent, is lived out in circles like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Think about the difference between how an alcoholic in AA responds to a new person entering the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Let's say in a local AA meeting, there's somebody who's getting their five-year chip, meaning they have had five years of sobriety. That is success. And on this very day, somebody enters who's actually drunk and has never been in an AA meeting. How, how does everyone respond to that new drunk? The person who's been sober for five years just got their chip. Do you know what they say? Hi, I'm Johnny. I'm an alcoholic. 
They start with their sin. They're humble and they're transparent. They don't act like the, the alcoholism of that new person entering is no problem. They don't brush it under the rug. Oh, don't worry about it. Everyone gets to choose their own way. Nor do they attack or belittle or shout down the drunk. They're moved to compassion because they see in that person struggling in their alcoholism their own struggle in sinfulness. They're at different places, but it's the same depth of sin. I wonder if that AA approach is our approach when we read about somebody who is an atheist or living what we call an immoral lifestyle, rejecting the ways of God. Are we humble and transparent and compassionate? The opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. It's admitting your sin. It's transparent humility. First, reflect Jesus. Second, admit sin. And third, live by the gospel of grace. We need to stop trying to look religious and start living by the gospel of grace, applying the gospel to ourselves and to everyone around us. You know, often the problem with our Christian message, our gospel message, is that it sounds like it's about rules and behavior. The average outsider, somebody who doesn't go to a church, thinks that Christianity is about being good or becoming a better person. You ask most kids who grow up in the church, what does it mean to be a Christian? And, and while they'll, they'll mouth something about Jesus, what they really think is, I need to be good and not get in trouble. And then we grow up like adults thinking the same thing. One of the studies that Barna did suggested that Christians prioritize morality, behavior, and avoiding sin in their own life. What they determine, what average Christians determine is the marks of maturity of faith is avoiding sin. That's not the gospel. The gospel is very clearly put to us in 1 John 2. John writes, if anyone does sin, that anyone does sin is, is, a, is an assumed, everyone does sin. He's already said that. Everyone sins. Everyone sins, but we have an advocate with the Father. We need an advocate with the Father. We need somebody to defend us before a holy and righteous judge, and that is Jesus Christ, our righteous lawyer. He is the propitiation for our sins. That means he dies in our place. Propitiation means he bears the wrath and judgment of God for us. That's what Christianity is about. It's that we can't be good enough. Jesus was. We deserve death, the wrath of God. Jesus received that in our place. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The gospel message is this. All of us are sinners. Jesus died for all of us. It's not behavior that saves you. 
It's Jesus. And faith in his death in our place for us. But if you ask the average person outside of the church what they thought our message was about, what do you think they would say? Here's some questions. Are we emphasizing the gospel or behavior in our messages outside of the church? What do we seem to be emphasizing most in the public square? What do we get most passionate about online, in social media sources and blogs? When are we most likely to write something in? When we are in a discussion with someone who is not a Christian, who says, I I don't really believe what you believe, are we more zealous to impose Christian ethics or to share the Christian gospel? What is the message that we actually emphasize? We need to apply the gospel to ourselves and to everyone around us. You know, the gospel should make us more humble because as we talked about, every one of us recognizes we are a sinner. The starting place of people who are applying the gospel is recognizing that I am no better than anyone else. I am not better than somebody who is a criminal. I am not better than that that kid who's drunk on a Friday night. I'm not better than anyone who's on the newspaper or or being flashed around media circles. I'm not better than them. I am not. That's what the gospel says. The gospel also tells me that I can be fully assured of God's love for me. And that means I don't have to worry about appearances. I don't have to worry about looking religious or looking like I have it all together. Nor do I need to be afraid of the direction the culture's going. God loves me. He has saved me. He is in control. No fear. The gospel will cause us to assume sin and brokenness in this culture and in this culture's people. The gospel will move us to compassion to actually know and care about this culture's people. And the gospel will push us to extend grace in such a way that outsiders are constantly experiencing the gospel through us. They're experiencing Jesus' sacrificial death for them through us. You know, if we're looking for a model, here's a good one. Uh, Jesus. Specifically, think about Jesus' approach to the demon-possessed guy in Luke chapter 8. We didn't read this story. I'll do my best to retell it. But when when we think about dealing with things in our culture, people in our culture who most upset us because they're pushing against the ways of God, think about how Jesus dealt with legion, the man possessed with a legion of demons. Here's the basic story. Jesus and the disciples go across the Sea of Galilee, they land on the other side in a a place that was pagan. It was not Jewish, and they were Jewish. They land on the other side, and the first person to meet them coming out from the tombs of dead bodies from the cemetery is a demon-possessed guy. 
If you read the story, you find out a couple of other things about this demon-possessed guy. He is naked. He is cut up, scratched, because he's constantly self-abusing himself with rocks and sharp stones. He's got shackles on himself because they tried to chain him up. He looks like an animal. He stinks like dead bodies, like somebody who's not showered. He's probably starving. He is maniacal and an animal. He does not look human. He does not reflect the image of God as God intended. He doesn't look like what you or I would say a person should look like. But how does Jesus respond to him? What's the first thing Jesus does? He goes towards the man. Everyone else went away from this man. They avoided this man. They wanted nothing to do with this man. A good rabbi, a good Jewish rabbi, which Jesus was, would never have gone near somebody like that because that would have made him ceremonially and religiously unclean. Jesus goes where it will make him unclean. He goes towards the man. Nobody ever went towards this man. And then what is Jesus' first words to this man? What is your name? What is your name? Think about the simple but profound dignity in that. I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to know your story. I want to know you. He didn't tell the man, you're an abomination. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. You have, you have broken and destroyed the image of God in you. You know, all those things were actually true. He looked more animal than man, more demonic than human, more sin than righteous. Jesus is extending grace first to a man who, think about this, we think about the sadness of this guy's state, but it was his own sin and paganism that led him into this. If you trace demon possession in people, it's actually because they've walked away from God, pushed away from him, and delved darker and darker into sin and darkness. This man's problem is his own fault. But Jesus starts with compassion. Because he sees this man as somebody who is bound, bound by Satan and bound by sin. He sees this man as somebody deeply broken, needing healing, needing restoration. Jesus leads, starts with love and kindness. He shows compassion. He offers dignity. And then Jesus sets him free so that he can know life and life to the full. Let's go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, our Father, you have called us to know you and to serve you, but we serve ourselves. We hide from you and from others our own sin forgive us. We have not lived the life you have called us to, loved the way you have called us to, 
followed you the way you've called us to. We have not reflected the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who offers forgiveness and healing and hope to every one of us. Amen.